Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, founder of Alzheimer's Speaks Resource website and blog. My passion is to educate the world about Alzheimer's and memory loss, and that came from my mother's 30-year journey with dementia. For those of you who are new to the show, I wanted to give you a brief introduction to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. Our goal is to give voice to those afflicted with memory loss and empower them to live purpose-filled lives. We want to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with Alzheimer's disease. Our channel expert living with Alzheimer's, Rick Phelps, is here with us today. And Rick was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease in June of 2010. He's also the founder of Memory People, a support group on Facebook. And I'm so glad that you're with us here today, Rick. How are you doing? I'm doing good, Lori. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be here, and I, I'm excited to talk to your guests and get some insight of what they're doing. This is good. Yeah, we're going to have a great show today. And before I before I get to uh, Dan and Ellen, I just want to, um, again, point people to our homepage and let them know that if they want to make a comment or um, have a question, they can use the chat box, or they can always call in to our number live, which is 714-6, I'm sorry, 714-364-4757, and then just push 1, and you'll get into my cue box, so I'll know you're there. Today's show is called A Pocket Guide for Alzheimer's Caregivers, and our guests are authors Daniel C. Potts, who is an MD, and his wife, Ellen Woodward Potts. And this is just an amazing couple with an absolutely incredible story. They have dealt with eight family members with various forms of dementia. And they are going to talk today and let us know what their journey has been like, um, why they decided to write this book. And so I'm so happy that both of you are are with us. Um, Daniel Putz is, um, they, again, they co-authored this book together, is a noted neurologist, author, educator, and a champion of those with Alzheimer's disease and their caregivers. He was chosen by the American Academy of Neurology as the 2008 um, award winner for uh, Advocate of the Year. And he has been inspired by his father's journey through Alzheimer's and his mother's dedication as a caregiver. Dr. Potts seeks to provide hope and support for those in like circumstances. He has authored and co-authored numerous other um, books, and he has a couple of poetry books, The Broken Jar and The Turning Time. And then Ellen Woodward Potts has her MBA, and again, she writes weekly caregiver educational articles for several newspapers. Ellen's family cared for her maternal grandfather and paternal grandmother with Alzheimer's disease, in addition to two great aunts and her maternal grandmother with dementia from strokes. Um, So she has a heart for um, dementia and their caregivers. At the University of Alabama, Ellen teaches a survey course of nonprofits Um, organizations called Leadership Development Through Service. She has over 20 years of experience managing medical practices in numerous different specialties and serves on um, several different boards. 
So I would, I'm just so excited to have you both here. Um, thank you, thank you so much for joining us, both Dan and Ellen. Um, to start out, um, I'm going to just kind of ping pong these questions back and forth to the two of you. I think that'll be the easiest um, to do. So, Dan, if you wouldn't mind starting and just share your story with us. How, how has uh, Alzheimer's and dementia touched you? First of all, Lori, uh, t let me say thank you so much for uh, for inviting us to be on your program. This is a wonderful opportunity to get together and share with others, and, and you do great work, and we appreciate your recognition, and, and thank you so much for this. Um, <clears throat> it's our pleasure to come to you from Tuscaloosa, Alabama this morning. It's hot down here. I'm sure it's, <laughs> it feels like it's hot <laughs> everywhere today. Um and I apologize if I hack occasionally. I seem to have some bronchitis going on today. But um, <clears throat> let me start out and just tell you a minute or two why we are doing what we're doing. Uh, <clears throat> of course, I have my training in neurology, and I'm a neurologist, a general neurologist in Tuscaloosa, and I'm on faculty at the University of Alabama. Uh, I thought I knew a little bit about Alzheimer's disease and dementia just because of my training and, and uh uh, my patients, but I found that I didn't know much at all about it before my father was diagnosed with the illness in uh, about 2002. Lester Potts, my dad, was a utilitarian child of the Great Depression, uh, a community leader, uh, a woodworker, a sawmiller, and just a wonderful fellow, Korean a War veteran, etc., and uh, Dad rapidly descended into Alzheimer's disease uh, in the early 2000s. Um, <clears throat> he passed away in the year of 2007, and we uh, got the opportunity to walk this road with him. My mother primarily is the primary caregiver. Through the course of this experience with my dad, we learned so much about caregiving, and we learned so much about the hope that can remain and should remain for those that are dealing with this disease and caregivers that are experiencing it as well. My father became uh, a watercolor artist in the throes of the illness, having never painted before. We didn't know he had this talent. And he was exposed to art and music therapy uh, at a dementia daycare center called Caring Days here in Tuscaloosa which uh, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But through the kind of caregiving he got and the exposure to these therapies, Dad's life was changed, and he became a watercolor artist, painting over 100 watercolors over four or five years that are now internationally known. This story gave us so much hope and inspired us to get out and tell his story and our story. And we've done that through um, several books, and most recently, A Pocket Guide for the Alzheimer's Caregiver, which pulls in our experience with him, but also Ellen's experience with her family members uh, for many, many years. And uh, that's kind of why uh, I'm doing what I'm doing, and, and we're doing what we're doing. I'll let Ellen tell uh, uh, her own unique story as well, but uh, that's, that's basically why. Okay, wonderful. And Ellen, do you have anything you want to add there? Um, I would just say that uh, my journey, well, first of all, I would say thank you so much for having us, and, and we appreciate the the invitation and, and 
the uh, opportunity to, to speak on your program. Um, my journey with Alzheimer's actually began when I was about four years old, um, about 1970, uh, when my grandfather started noticing um, signs of, of dementia. He uh, was a store owner. He owned a Western Auto store, and he noticed it before any of us did because he was always able to keep the stock numbers and the wholesale and retail prices and inventory in his head, and he noticed at about 60 years old that he couldn't do that anymore. And, of course, none of us could have done that you know, regardless, with a perfectly good mind. And, and so we didn't think anything about it. My family didn't. His wife did not. And um, as time went on, it became more and more apparent that, that something was going on. Uh, they lived in rural northeastern Tennessee in Appalachia. And um, the doctors that he saw, you know, said it was hardening of the arteries, it was this, it was that. Um, and nobody could really diagnose him. This was, you know, early on, and even though Dr. Alzheimer had named and described the disease, I believe, in 1901, uh, it really wasn't mainstream in the medical community, um, you know, certainly outside of larger medical centers um, at this time. And so, you know, finally we took him to Emory University in the mid-'70s, and he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Um, his course of illness uh, was about 14 years, uh, 13, 14 years, um, and my grandmother kept him at home uh, until about three months before he passed away. Um, she was a wonderful, dedicated caregiver, um, and about the time he died, my, my grandmother on the other side of the family um, started showing signs of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, my father is an only child, and so we were... Uh, primary caregiver for her, and um, it, it's been a. It, it really there have been very few times in my life. I guess I guess since 2007, when Danny's father passed away, um, these last several years have been the only time in my life when I did not have a family member, um, either you know on on my side of the family or Danny's, uh, who had Alzheimer's disease or some form of dementia. So. Um, it, I nearly grew up with this skewed perspective of, of that being the norm, um, which which is you know interesting family history for me. But um, but I have such a heart for caregiving because I've seen my family struggle, and really in in a pocket guide for the Alzheimer's caregiver, we uh, we tried to include the information that we wish we and our families had had while we were caring for our loved ones. Um, especially early on, there were no resources, at least that we knew about, um, for caregivers. You just did the best you could. But, um, you know, there are a lot of things that, that we wish we'd known, and, and we tried to include those. Wow. I just think, you know, 40 years you've been on this journey. I mean, since the 70s, that's just Incredible. You know, I've been on it 30 years with my mom, but when I think back when I was 13, that was when I first ran into it with one of my family members, too, a great aunt. And I'll never forget when she was, when I was 13 and she didn't know who I was, you know. So it's, it is amazing when people think back. I, I, I don't, I, there's, it's rare when I haven't met somebody who hasn't been touched with this in some fashion. 
somewhere along the line. And, um, you know, your family was blessed to have the two of you. I mean, you guys have really, truly gotten to be experts in terms of fielding and, and expecting, you know, what can happen, even though, you know, from moment to moment things can change. So, Again, I thank you both so much for being here. Can you give us, a, you, Ellen, you had given us an example of, um, you know, uh, trying to, you know, things that had changed. And I, was it your uncle or your grandfather who couldn't remember? I think it was your grandfather who couldn't uh, couldn't remember. See, I can't remember. No. <laughs> and uh, and um, can you give us some other examples of family members of, of things that they were having problems with between the two of you? Um, well, my grandmother on my father's side, my my grandfather on my mother's side was the first person to get <clears throat> Alzheimer's disease, but then my grandmother on my father's side had Alzheimer's, and, and I remember the struggles just with her um, you know the 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 stepwise fashion i think i think we knew a little bit more about it because she um probably started showing signs of alzheimer's in about 1980 82 something or you know about about that time but um she died in 1995 and um she she really you know we 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 struggled with the stepwise fashion with her. You know, she lived independently. Um, when I was young, uh, when I was about four, she sold her farm and moved to Huntsville, where I lived, Huntsville, Alabama. And um, so she really, she was was my buddy. She was my babysitter. She was, you know, she took care of me anytime my parents couldn't or um, needed a babysitter or something. So I, I really did grow up with her being very close to her and just watching her um, through this process uh, and watching her personality change, um, watching uh, just just watching the process and watching my parents deal with the process. Um, it was just very difficult. When, when you say personality change, can you give um, a little more detail on what you mean by that? Well, she was always a very kind person and um, was was one of those people that, you know, if you can't say nice something nice, don't <clears throat> say anything at all. And um, as, as she progressed in her illness, I noticed uh, after she moved into a facility, <clears throat> she would she would point at people and criticize them which was just completely out of character for her um you know she she would she would just point and criticize and and it just was not her personality she was still the same loving person to me um as as long as she knew me but um you know it as the as the disease progressed it it was um, it did affect her personality, and um, you know that was difficult to watch. Yeah, that, I know. With my mom, I call it the filters are gone. You know what they once would have, you know, held back and reserved is is no longer. There's no, there's not that barrier anymore. That filter of what's right. acceptable or or what's not. Rick, how about you? Um, have you noticed some some things with yourself in terms of personality changes at all, or? 
Well, Lori, I want to try to get through this. Um, I'm, I'm walking back and forth, and my heart's about ready to jump out of my chest here. I'm so okay. emotional. Um, of all the guests that we've had on this show, <clears throat> these two people are a godsend. I, uh, I'm packing my clothes right now to move to Alabama because he's going to be my new. <laughs> I, Come I, on I'm down serious. here. Come on down. <laughs> well, let me tell you a little story here, if I if I may. I've talked to, I don't know, let's say three or four neurologists and many, many doctors. And, and just because you're a neurologist, that doesn't mean you get it, if you understand what I'm saying. Um, the, the first neurologist that diagnosed me, he diagnosed me with EOAD, a terminal disease, in 17 minutes. And that's one of the chapters of my book that I'm writing called While I Still Can. And how how anyone could possibly do that. I mean, he gave us no insight of this disease or anything like that. And that's been over a year ago. And since then, you know, I've become educated the best I can about it. But there's so many people, uh, doctors and, and psychologists and, and just laymen that, that just don't understand this disease. And I'm not knocking any of them. I'm just saying it, it's a shame that they don't understand what the patient goes through along with the caregiver. And then I talked to people, you know, I just met you two, and I two minutes of listening to you that you get it. I mean, it's so refreshing to be able to talk to someone that understands what the caregiver and the patient is going through. It's just absolutely elating. Oh, that's nice. Nice to hear. Well, that is wonderful, and we, we're just honored that you uh, think that. Thank you so much. I, I just hope that, you know, our experiences can can help some other people. Um, really, you know, and it's difficult to understand unless you have been there. Um, it's difficult to get inside of the inside of the thought processes and in, inside of the difficulties unless you have really been exposed to it or have really educated yourself. Um, it you know it, it's it's hard unless you've been there, unless you've walked that road. Rick, I'll tell you, um, there's a disconnect uh, between, uh, between, edu between making a diagnosis and between supporting uh, someone after that diagnosis. There's a disconnect with most physicians, and I'm speaking as one who's been guilty of this as well. I mean, you know, Giving somebody a diagnosis is a valuable thing because that can give, uh, as you know, some peace of mind about finally knowing what's going on. But if you don't follow that up with support mechanisms and education and caregiver support, uh, <clears throat> then we're not doing what we need to do. And I, I think a lot of physicians and healthcare providers actually don't have the tools or the knowledge regarding the caregiving side. Uh, that, to give people, and I, I, we want to change that. We want uh, there to be more of that that goes into medical education. I, I think that that is so important. In fact, the, the whole disconnect um, is, I think, so frustrating for individuals that are diagnosed and their families. I know when I go out and I've done training, I'll never forget I was in Montana, and all of a sudden this person got up from a table, and comes running back with a roll of toilet paper and hands it to this man who is just in tears sobbing. 
Now, he had been a nursing home administrator for like 20, 25 years, and he came up and talked to me afterwards, and he said, you know, I've, I've run the jargon, I know the terms, I know all the technical pieces, he said, but now my dad has it. And uh. it's ripping my heart apart. He's like, and I will never, ever look at this disease the same way again. And so... For me, one of the things that, that I um, really teach and kind of preach is what I call emotional-based um, training, because I don't think we're going to get that shift in terms of the technical piece until people feel the difference and can really have that impact, because, I mean, even with words that are used, you know, we're opening up, we opened up this memory cafe, JRF's memory cafe that we brought over from the U.K., and with some of the um, doctors and associations, they're like, well, we're not quite sure really, you know, who your target is. You know, is it people with early onset? Is it this? Is it that? And I, finally, I, I said, listen, we are not talking technical language. This is for people with early memory loss that can still engage in a social atmosphere and who want to, you know, support themselves with peers. And that's as simple as it gets. You know, we're not putting people into categories. You know, it's about living with the disease, not living as the disease. And to me, that's one of the biggest barriers that we have to break down. And, and I feel very confident with all of us working together, we can do that um, and make that shift. And I think that's one of the important roles with your, um, with your book. You know, it's just loaded with great, great information there. Um, you know, how did how was it for you, Dan, to go in and, you know, for your dad's diagnosis, did you diagnose him? Did you have a, a colleague? I mean, what was that like for you, sitting on the other side of the fence? Well, there's a story there, too, uh, Lori. Um Dad began to have some some changes in his personality and his behavior uh, before uh, we realized that he had short-term memory loss. And uh, one of those one of those things was his dad was a very even keel, uh, calm man. He he rarely got uh, upset about things. And and uh, there was an incident at at the church in his hometown regarding a tree. Dad had a special relationship with trees. Of course, he loved the woods. He loved trees. And one of the trees that was diseased at the church had to be cut down. And uh, Dad did not approve of that, and he let everybody know that. And that was an uncommon uh, uh, behavioral thing for him. So Mother told me about that, and we said, well, you know, yeah, that's a little unusual. But then there were some other things, and eventually he... Uh, eventually, Mom and Dad moved to Tuscaloosa from the small town where I grew up, about 50 miles away. Dad had retired. He got a job parking cars at a local physician's office uh, building here for our, for our hospital. Uh, <clears throat> unbeknownst to me uh, and to Mother to some extent, he began to have errors, make errors on the job. Lose keys, lose the cars, stay gone for 45 minutes or an hour looking for cars, wandering around the parking deck, etc., had a couple of fender benders coming home from work. Um, he had had some surgery around that time, and, you know, he had a move. And so we thought, well, uh, I thought, well, maybe this is just normal. Um, so 
mother began to tell me things. And I said, Mom, I think we're okay. You know, he's getting older. Well, one thing led to another, and eventually Dad's employer, who was an attorney uh, at, at, at the hospital, came to my office one day and said, we need to talk. And she sat down with me, and she said, I, I, are you aware of what's going on with your dad? I said, not really. What are you talking about? She said, well, I'm probably breaking employment laws to tell you this, but this is more important than any employment law. She said, because you see, my father had Alzheimer's disease, and uh, I think your dad may have it too. So I listened to what she said, and I said, thank you for talking to me. I appreciate it very, very much. This day has, of course, changed my life. Dad called me later that day and said, son, it just didn't work out at this new job. I believe I'm going to take some time and be with your mom and enjoy retirement. And I said, Dad, I think that's wonderful. Please do that. And he hung up, and I cried, and I'm sure he cried when I hung up. Um, this was the beginning uh, of our descent into this, uh, or our ascent into this, uh, whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> but I think what that taught me is as I was in denial, uh, I, if I recognized those early signs, I, I, I denied that. Uh, perhaps I didn't even recognize them. So it taught me a lot about what caregivers go through at the very earliest signs of this, uh, of this uh, process. And I want to be able to share that as well. I'm a believer in early diagnosis. So that's, my, that's the story about how we got Dad diagnosed. I, I didn't diagnose Dad really. I, well, I sort of did, I guess. But we, we sent him to one of my partners, Jim Geyer, who, is, uh, who became Dad's neurologist. And Jim very much understands this illness and was there the whole time. But that's how Dad got his diagnosis. Okay. Well, you know, it's, it's interesting that even someone in your shoes can be like the rest of us and, and, and go through the whole denial thing. And, um, you know, that there's so many excuses we can make and that it takes sometimes someone else to point something out. But it also takes, um, you know, I commend you for being open in terms of listening to that other person, too, because some people would still continue down that denial path and just let it go. Well, you know, when you encounter something personally with a family member, it's harder. <laughs> excuse me. It's harder to uh, to see the writing on the wall, and and uh, this is one of the reasons why physicians really shouldn't take care really shouldn't take care of close family members because you just it's hard to be objective. You know. I had a, a great aunt who was a nurse, and and she was speaking of caring for her sister, and and one of the family members asked her about that. And and she looked me in the eye and she said she said you know it's different when it's one of your own, and I would I would just reassert that because you know it's interesting when when friends of ours or or people that we meet tell us their stories and they say but I really don't <clears throat> think it's Alzheimer's disease because of this and that you know we can see things so clearly because we can be objective but when it's one of your own it is so different. And I have, uh, you know, I'm speaking for certainly both of our families. Um, I've never known a family that wasn't in denial, um, and caregivers often feel so guilty about that. But it is, it is different when it's one of your own. And, and, you know, you've known this person as a logical, rational human being for, you know, for a long time and and you think that if you work hard enough or you know you want to make excuses you don't want 
the the truth to be the truth. You don't want to know that the person has Alzheimer's disease. Um, and and it's you know denial is part of the process. So um, caregivers need to understand that and and you know move on from the guilt that that causes. Yeah, the, the guilt can just beat us up so bad. I know when it, it came time for my mom um, to end up moving into a community, it wasn't part of the plan. And the funny thing was is for, you know, 20 years, I I helped people make that decision. I helped other families, you know, pick the right, the right community for their loved ones. But when it came to my own mom, the good daughter syndrome hit me hard and fast. And it was like, well, no, I can do better than that. And so, um, but she actually made the decision because my dad ended up in a nursing home with brain cancer. And she woke up, you know, really clear one morning um, in her early stages and just said, we've been together 49 and a half years and I'm not leaving them now. And, and the first thing out of my lips was, but that's not the plan. <laughs> you know, that's not the plan. Right. <laughs> because I wanted to be in control, you know, and I wanted to. I wanted to have faith that there was a plan that we could stick to and um, because that gave me more comfort. And then I remember sitting back and kind of laughing at myself going, Lori, it's, it's not about your comfort. You know, it's about their comfort. And it's about doing the right thing for them at the time. And so, you know, it, it is very funny how you you do dig your dig your head in the sand sometimes with these situations. Um, Rick, Rick, on your side, have you seen where any, you know, family members or friends, have you dealt with denial at all? Or Oh, my, what a story there. Um, I, I wanted to say something before that. I, I know when I was diagnosed, um, I had problems three or four years before that, but... My, my uh, general doctor, he attributed it to uh, stress or depression or whatever. I think it's because of my age. I was only 56 at the time. But I'll never forget the day we went down and I got my official diagnosis. It was like uh, somebody lifted a weight off my shoulders. But at the same time, Phyllis June was so uh, um, heartbroken and crying, and my daughter and everybody was just just torn apart. And I'm like, listen, this is okay. At least now I know it was so hard to get people to understand what I was going through. I would hear things like, well, I, guess I lose my keys or I forget my wallet, and they just don't understand that that isn't what this is like. I mean, I can walk into a room in our house that we've lived in for 17 years, and not only do I not know why I'm there, but I'm not even sure what the room is at times. Now, like I say, this doesn't happen every day and 24-7, but it happens way too often. And the denial thing, I tell people this all the time. I've been asked by the Alzheimer's Association to speak at certain events, and uh, you could just cut the tension in the room. The, the last one, I think it was three or 400 uh, health care workers and doctors there, and, and I started out, and I, said, I told them my name, and my wife was there with me sitting there, and I said, every once in a while, uh, I'd like to keep Phyllis June on her toes, so I stick a skillet in the freezer just to see if she'll catch it. And, and things like yeah, things like that are humorous, but you have to have humor with this disease. I, I kid around like that all the time because I know it's a terminal disease, but we're all terminal. You know, nobody's going to get out of this life alive. You know, in a way, I feel blessed knowing 
that I have X amount of years left and I can do what I can do to help people with this disease, caregivers and patients alike. I, I do a daily video or, or a video three or four days a week. You know, it's not scripted or anything. I just sit at my kitchen table and I explain what what I go through uh, on this disease. And, and I don't know, I'm rambling now, but I think you're getting the idea mm-hmm. of what, what we go through. <laughs> Yep. Let me yep. just say, Rick, that the, the the pearls that you that see that the the pearls that you were dropping just in telling people about this, it's just amazing. I mean, I'm trying to I'm trying to literally memorize what you're saying right now because there's so many valuable lessons that that, that folks can learn about this. You know, you mentioned humor. Well, that's just critical. But a lot of people feel guilty. Uh, when they when they try to uh, try to have humor bring humor into the to the caregiving you know people people feel guilty about that but you have to oh you exactly know, I, 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 well i remember oh go ahead ellen okay i i remember i was watching jay leno one night and i i can't remember who the actor was that was his guest but um the the actor's father had Alzheimer's disease, and the actor was, um, you know, speaking out about it and, and was an activist about it. And um, and Jay said, well, you know, there have been comedians who have made fun of um, Alzheimer's disease or, you know, that kind of thing, and, and what do you think about that? And the actor looked at him and said, you know, he said, for those people who um, who are ignorant enough to laugh at the disease he said i i wish them their blissful ignorance and he said for those of us who are so close to the disease we understand that you have to have humor to keep your sanity um and he said he said you know humor has to be a part of it just because it relieves the stress and and just helps keep you centered and sane and and i have often remembered that and and you know we we have um the stories sometimes they're just funny. Things happen that are just funny, and you you just have to keep a sense of humor, just like the rest of life. Well, well you're exactly yeah, you're exactly right. I remember telling somebody one time when I was diagnosed, it was a terrible diagnosis. You know, it's it's terminal, and and bad things are going to happen. And they just kind of stood there and looked at me, and then I said, well, but at least I don't have Alzheimer's. <laughs> it was funny at the time, I thought, but. I don't Absolutely. know. Yeah, well, humor, but you have humor, humor is, yeah, you have to do that. Exactly. And, Danny, you're not going to have to memorize anything I'm saying because um, I have all intentions of uh, emailing you guys and getting together. And, and if I can help in your in your cause anyway, like I told you before we was on the air, I I truly believe that a patient can tell more about this disease than and I'm not, you know, how I am. I'm not knocking any neurologist or anything like that. It's just that I have it, and, and while I still can, I want to share it and tell people about it. Which is well, wonderful. you're exactly right. Yeah, we need to we need to all work together, and we need to just raise the voice. You know, we need to let it be heard, so that there isn't as much denial going on. Um, that we truly become a force out there that has to be reckoned with and has to be dealt with. And, you know, people shouldn't have to apologize or feel embarrassed because of an illness. And for some reason there's a stigma with this disease that is just um, 
it, you know, it's so crippling. And when you were talking about the humor, humor is one of the most basic pieces of any relationship. Uh, and it's probably, you know, one of the, the most look forward to things in any type of friendship. That's valued. I mean, you've got you have your, your your love and your commitment and all of that, but everybody likes to laugh, and so we have to, you know, it's okay to laugh with somebody. We're not laughing at somebody, and you know, if if a friend did something um, that was the same as someone who had Alzheimer's and they weren't ill, you'd be busting the guts. And for some reason, we just feel like it's disrespectful. And I think people really have to get over that because so many people, when they're ill with any chronic illness, will say, you know, if you ask them, what's the one thing you want? I want things to be normal. And laughter is very normal. So, this is um, so true. And, and the, the, rela- the, the relational aspects, the relationship aspects uh, need to be emphasized like you're doing, Lori, because, you know, when someone is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and we're their caregiver, the positive aspects of the relationship should grow uh, stronger and should be uh, intensified and focused on. Humor being one of those, uh, and and not and not distanced. You know, so many people when when a friend of theirs uh, is diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease and begins to uh, have these symptoms, they don't know how to interact with them anymore, so they stay away. You know. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure. You know that we've all seen that, and and uh, we 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 need to get outside of ourselves and be able to strengthen those those bonds, and, rather than uh, experience distance. Well, and for me, one of the things you know, I always try to focus on with my mom, who's in her very end stages. You know, really doesn't speak. You know, can't feed herself. Can't. I mean, she can't do anything for herself. But we can still create joy. And that's a really simple thing to do. And, you know, we can all do that. It's just, you know, lighten up and stop right. looking at the end of the road and appreciate what's before you right now, you know, because we worry so much about what's going to happen and so much of what we think is going to happen doesn't happen or it's pushed out so far we've lost, you know, we're, we're putting so much energy into the what if instead of... Um, just relating to one another. And I see that as, as one of the biggest mistakes out there. And just let me make a comment, and, and I know you're aware of this, but um, we did not know this when my grandmother was ill. But, you know, the people who are in the end stage, um, and we've all passed them by in the nursing home or, you know, wherever, but... Those people are still there, you know, and there's a wonderful video on YouTube by, um, with Naomi File, F-E-I-L, interacting with a lady named Gladys Wilson, and, and she, you know, this is, Gladys Wilson is basically every, every end-stage Alzheimer's patient we've all passed by in the nursing home, and, you know, uh, Naomi File interacts with her and gets her to sing the hymns of her childhood. And, uh, you know, what we found, Danny's father uh, at the end of his life had not spoken in probably five months or so. He he lost his language function pretty early 
um, in the process just with his variant of Alzheimer's disease. And um, less than 24 hours before he died, he was in an inpatient hospice facility, had not spoken in months. And when we sang the hymns of his childhood, he was a very religious man, and when we sang the old songs, you know, the the familiar hymns, he could sing all of those. And, um, you know, speaking of keeping humor in in things, um, I was I was trying to I was in the room with him by myself, and I was trying to feed him some things that would just taste good. He really wasn't eating anymore, uh, but we would feed him ice cream and things like that that would just taste good and be pleasant for him. And so I was singing to him. Danny and I are both singers, and, and I was singing How Great Thou Art because I know that that's one of his favorite hymns. And I was kind of multitasking and try to, trying to feed him and sing at the same time, and I just blanked on the words. And and we we called him Papa. That's what our children called him. And I said, Oh, Papa, I've forgotten the words to How Great Thou Art. And this man who had really not really who had not really reacted, you know, to people's words, gave me this horrified look because I had <laughs> forgotten the words to How Great Thou Art. But but he could sing, you know. And if I would take an extra long breath before the chorus, he would go on without me. Um, so you know there there are ways to interact with people. Music is one of the best things. Um, familiar readings. If if the person enjoyed um, you know literature or scripture or whatever, um, familiar readings from the version that they would have been familiar with in their childhood um, are are wonderful tools to connect with that person. Um, I know Maria Shriver said that that her fa- her father, Sergeant Shriver, could, you know, say the Our Father and and uh, the the Hail Mary until the day he died, and but he really couldn't speak otherwise. Um, I think so. You know, it, especially if people are are religious, there are um, hymns, uh, scripture readings, familiar um, prayers, things like that um, can really connect. And and even if they're not religious, you know, folk songs, things that they would have sung uh, in their childhood or been familiar with in their childhood are wonderful tools to connect with the person at a point when um, it's difficult to connect otherwise. Yeah, music is really powerful. On my uh, YouTube channel, Alzheimer's Speaks, I have a whole mess of them. Um, and some of them have thousands of hits. And the music therapists just love it because you can see the joy. You can see the hands tapping and you can see the facial expressions. And there's been a couple of times where, you know, my mom, you know, she can't hug me because she can't, she can maybe itch her nose, you know, and it takes her a while and and it's almost like a Parkinson's type, you know, shaking to, to get up to her nose. So she really can't control herself. And one thing, well, a couple of times we've listened to music and out of the blue, totally out of the blue, this woman shimmies like a professional dancer. <laughs> like, oh, oh, my. That's well, great. I haven't seen you do that, and she's looking, like, straight up at the ceiling, like she's connecting with somebody, and she gets this big smile on her face, and she shimmies like like nothing I've ever seen before. And I just kind of go, wow. <laughs> you know? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, so it, it is very interesting. Um, can you guys tell us a little bit about your book, how you structured it, and and you know what what you think people will get from the book? 
I don't know who wants to take that. I'll let you guys go ahead, Ellen. Okay. The book the book started, um, you know, obviously out of our experiences with with family members and and Danny's experiences with with patients. <clears throat> but um, I started I started blogging about caregiver issues, and um, pretty soon, you know, people said, "Oh, you should you should put those into a book." And um, so we we started thinking about that, and then kind of modified some of the blogs into a book, and and thought about basically all of the things that we really you know, wish we had known and things that would be helpful and practical. And uh, the last chapter we added, um, you know, we live in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, and everybody knows, you know, that basically six miles by one mile of our city was wiped out on April 27th. So right before we sent the book to press, we added a chapter on what to do with your loved one, you know, how how to deal with your loved one with Alzheimer's disease during severe weather. Um, you know, because that that was such an issue in our city. Um and and actually, you know, I would add more to that if I were writing the book today, just as we've been a hundred and some odd days post tornado. But um we really tried to tried to just include our experiences and and you know, all of the things that we wish we'd done differently um, as a family and as, um, you know, as individuals just because we didn't know better. Um, you know, we, we try to include our experiences where, you know, the few times when we did the right thing, we loved our loved ones and did the best we could. You know, I'm speaking from our entire, both of our families, you know, we everybody did the best that they could, but um, but if they had had the tools to um, know more about the disease, to understand more about how people with Alzheimer's uh, view the world and and some of the the issues that um, the the deterioration in the brain, some of those some of the things that that causes, some of the issues that that causes. Um, you know, we 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 would have done things differently, and um, so that's that's what we tried to include in the book. Just the things that we wish that we and our families had known when we were caring <clears throat> for for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease. Um, and and you know, I one thing I I like about the book is, I mean. Heaven knows we really didn't need to go outside for stories. We had so many in our own families that, you know, the family stories were plenty of information to include in the book. Um, so 90% of the stories in the book are not from Danny's patients or friends or, or other situations. They're from our own family members and um you know, it, it was somewhat cathartic to write the book and to talk about our experiences um, and and kind of remember remember our loved ones that way. Yeah, I I totally agree with that. I have a bunch of stories that you know I keep saying I'm going to finish this book, but I really think that it needs to. It's really my mom's journey, and so I I need to wait until her journey is over with because she keeps teaching me things, even in these end stages when she, you know, to most people's standards, can't communicate. She There's lessons she's teaching me. 
and people go, oh, you can write another one, and it's like, no, I just want, I just want that to be complete for her. But it is, you know, writing and journaling and just talking about it is so healing. I, you know, I wish more people would do that. I do want to just make a comment. We have quite a few callers on the line, and if anyone has a question, all you have to do is push one, and then I'll know that you have a question. So I haven't pulled anybody on. So we'll see if any of them are, if they're just listening, you know, by phone or if they have questions, we can field those. And again, on the chat room, feel free to plug in any questions you might have for, for Dan and Ellen as well. Um, can the two of you, um, maybe, Dan, you go first. What was maybe the two most difficult things that, you know, it was for you to deal with with dementia with your family members? And <clears throat> Well, I, I will say um, probably the most, well, the, the two most difficult things for me, I guess. Number one was that I felt that I was in a place or a position that I should be able to sort of lead and sort of give advice to my mom and uh, uh, and, and and help my dad and sort of be a director there and sort of leader. And I did not feel equipped to do that. <clears throat> and so that was... Something that that hurt. Um, I felt helpless uh, when I was trying to guide. Mother would ask me things that I, I I didn't have an answer for. You know, things that would come up daily and how to plan for this or that. I just I felt uh, I felt ungifted to be able to give her those answers. That was hard. The other thing that was was really hard was to see my dad uh, uh, change uh, because of the disease and become somebody that was hard to deal with. Um, as I mentioned, he was a very uh, kind, compassionate, even-keel, loving man, uh, very, very uh, stable uh, emotionally, etc. And toward the end, he became uh, violent. And so we, we had to, we were in and out of seven different facilities with Dad before we had to commit him through the probate court system to uh, an inpatient geriatric psychiatry hospital to get him stabilized. And then we were able to, to place him in uh, the VA nursing home here in Tuscaloosa, which was a wonderful place. But, but seeing him go through that and having to testify uh, that my father was a danger to himself and others uh, was extremely difficult. And so okay. those are the two hardest things for me. That would be just heart-wrenching, yeah. How about you, Ellen? And then after Ellen uh, gives us her two things, and we've got a caller that's got a question, so. Okay. Um, I think the most, just just practically, the most difficult thing was, was my grandfather's wandering. You know, for most of, um, for for the time that he had Alzheimer's disease, I was, those were my growing up years, um, basically preschool through most of high school. And um, he was a wanderer, you know, and, and they were fortunate that they lived in a little town um, of 5,000 people um, where he, you know, they had owned the Western Auto Store in that tiny little town, so everybody in town knew him, and they would bring him back and things. But they lived on the edge of the mountains, you know. There were all kinds of things that could have happened to him. Um, and so I, I I really have a um, a passion for talking about GPS bracelets and things of that nature just because 
exactly what Rick said earlier. You know, he can walk into his house that he's lived in for 17 years on some days and it doesn't look familiar. Um, a person with Alzheimer's disease can go to the mailbox and turn around and it's not the house they recognize, so they wander away. Um, and there, there are too many preventable tragedies um, that can happen, uh, you know, because of wandering. That 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 was difficult with my grandfather. And I remember when when we would go to visit them, my my mom would take my grandmother, who was my grandfather's primary caregiver, um, out for the day, and they would go and do things. And um, Granddaddy liked to be outside, and so they would say, you know, Ellen, stay with Granddaddy, you know. And I would spend the day walking around with him. And, you know, when when we would leave there, we would be so exhausted because he was always wandering. He was a walker. He loved the outdoors. And um, and so that that was a difficult thing. Um, the, I think just emotionally the most difficult thing um, for me was with my was with my maternal, excuse me, my paternal grandmother. Um, when we put her in the nursing home, uh, that was just gut-wrenching. Um, she had been in assisted living. Before that, she um, moved to a community where they had independent living, and she, she lived there, and that was her decision to move to <coughs> independent living in that uh, you know elder community. Um, and and then she moved to assisted living, and then she really got to the point where she needed a higher level of care. And I remember moving her into the nursing home. My mom and I um, and my dad um, moved her into the nursing home. And and I remember the look um, when when we were leaving, and I thought, oh God, she knows she knows what's going on. Um, and this was when she was pretty far progressed in the disease, and that was just just gut wrenching. Um, you know, I'm still I'm, I'm tearing up when I'm talking about it now. But um, the you know the there are those decisions that um, that you make as family caregivers <clears throat> that you know have to be made. It's like you said, making that decision about moving your mom into the nursing home. You know that wasn't the plan. Um, well, there there's no roadmap. You know, uh, unfortunately, it, it's interesting. Danny's father's course of disease was very different from um, from the course of disease followed by my grandfather and my grandmother. So, um, you know, my my experience with family members helped somewhat, but it didn't help all that much because his dad's course of disease was so different. Um, and that that's what I would that's the way I would answer your question. It just you know, there are there are those difficult <clears throat> things that are just practical difficult things and there are the gut wrenching difficult things that are just so emotionally difficult. I agree, I agree. And I and I think it's good that you point out that, you know, everybody is different and every family dynamic is different. So I mean everyone's kind of got to go down this path themselves. They can have support and they can talk and they can get ideas, but twist it, turn it, just make it work, you know, for your situation because this is not a black and white disease by any stretch. And it it ebbs and flows and what works, you know, right now might not work five minutes from now and it might work again tomorrow. I mean, you just don't know. Exactly. 
we have to get better at reading their signals and interpreting things instead of just projecting this is the way it's going to be because it's easier for us or it makes us feel more comfortable. I'm going to try to call this, get this uh, caller on the line. It looks like we have somebody from a 740 area code. Hello, are you with us? Hello. Hi, and who am I speaking with? Hi, this is Phyllis, Lori, Rick's wife. Oh, hi, Phyllis. Nice to have you with us. <laughs> Thank you. Nice to be here. I was, uh, I'm at work, and I was listening to the show, and um just it, toward the beginning there with your guests, I, I guess I wanted to say that uh, it it is refreshing. I don't know if that's a very good choice of word, but to, but also to be able to hear somebody that understands and that talks about it uh, and knows what they're talking about. Because I totally agree with that with Rick. There's just so many people that that they just don't get it you know i mean we've had and the denial part we've had uh, family members on his side some of his cousins you know and they'll get me off to the side and they'll say well you need to tell him to stop doing this or this is what he needs to do you know and they've not dealt with anybody in the family you know uh with alzheimer's and so it's like i don't know where they get their education to to be making these choices you know to, to to say this is what's good and this is what they need to do and 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 i think that is just the denial and and you know i was in the denial stage too i think the whole family was at first but the longer you know it's been over a year now and the more you learn and the more you go with the flow and and try to educate yourself on it the denial goes away because you realize that it is what it is you know and uh, you know, there's always that hope that maybe it's reversible or, you know, you read so much at so many different times, you know, and, uh, it, you know, you just keep up the hope, but you, you do have to educate yourself and learn about what's going on. And then about the, the comedy part, Rick has always been a, a comic type of person joking around all the time. And I am one of the ones that was very offended when, when he would kind of joke about it at first. Even though I knew that was the type of person he is, but I didn't think it was a joking matter, and I didn't, you know, think it was funny. But once again, the more you educate yourself, and and that's just Rick's personality, and I, you know, I just hope he doesn't, you know, Lute doesn't lose that. Um, but you know, you just, you know, you just have to take the good with the bad. Yeah. So. Well, good. Well, that's I'm exactly so glad right. Phyllis, I appreciate you yeah. calling in, and I'll tell you, let me mention one th- about one thing you said, and that is folks thinking they know how to do it better than you do that, that are not there. I have had family members that will come in, children usually, that will come in from out of town, come to the office visit with mom who's taking care of dad with Alzheimer's, and they will have had this confrontation the children and mom will have because uh, they they don't understand what mom's going through. Oh, well, mom just loses her temper with dad, and, and mom, mom, you know, just lets him do anything, you know, he wants, and she does da-da-da-da-da. And I always tell him, I said, look, please understand that unless you're there 24-7 and you see what she's going through, please, please don't try to make it easy. Please, please don't try to tell her, oh, you right. need to be doing this or that. If this doesn't work right, and I, I, No, and I totally agree with you. I mean, you know, how can somebody that's not around at 24-7, and, and I guess, in a word, I'm really not because I work during the day, but, you know, I'm there every night and every morning. And But how can somebody that's not around it try to tell you 
how to deal with it and what you should and shouldn't be doing when I don't even know that yet. You know, I'm still learning sure. all of that. And, you know, I can uh, and I can understand, but I, I'm the type of person I just, like, bite my tongue and don't say anything because I don't want to run into the confrontation and, you know, I, I don't right. like that, you know, situation. So I just, I let them ramble, you know, and, and say, well, yeah, maybe maybe we'll try that. And I let it go with that, <laughs> you know, it's the best I can do. So. Well, I think that as a caregiver, too, you don't, um, <clears throat> you know, you have to really look at your life and where you're going to put your energy. And some people, you're just not going to change their ways. I mean, there's there's a point of educating them, and then there's a the point of you getting really frustrated and angry and, and you know, right. upset with it. And you just, you know, you have to really reserve your energy in terms of focus. And, and I think a lot of times people, you know, they're trying to help. They want to fix the problem, and, you know, many of them get out there and do a lot of research, but, again, they don't understand, um, you know, the guts of the disease and really how it works. And so as helpful as they're trying to be, it can cause more frustration than not many times. Well, right, and as far as trying to educate them, you know, I can't educate them. I'm learning myself, and, and no matter what I've done in my life, the the best you know my philosophy is the best learning experience is the on hand you know and I'm and I'm there and I'm learning that you know what oh boy I shouldn't do that anymore you know because I realize how you know upset he got or whatever uh, and and so I can't educate somebody else and and to me if they were really that concerned they need to try to educate themselves whether it be through reading the internet or books or or whatever before they start. You know, handing out advice, but like you said, Lori, they they they're trying to help. You know, and that's yeah. why I just, uh, you know, I, you know, I listen. It's not that I don't listen because some of the stuff it's like, well, maybe that will work. You know, mm-hmm. but yeah. it, 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 it gets almost, frustrating at times. It would almost be nice if there was almost like an Al-Anon group. You know, for caregivers that are like second and third layers. <laughs> you know, that aren't really hands on. Yeah. yeah, but a, a support. That's right for them and an educational resource. And I haven't seen anything like that out there, but that would be really kind of a cool thing if people would participate, if they would really take the time to well, right. yeah. you know, and, it's right. and we have an thing. Alzheimer's we have an Alzheimer's support group right here in town <clears throat> and, you know, they're caregivers and and, you know, I I go there and I and I hear what they're saying and I can relate to it. <laughs> Just like, for instance, about people telling them this, that, or the other. And, you know, sometimes I can add some good stuff in there, and I learn from that. You know, but it's, like you said, if if they come. You know, we've yeah. got, like, you know, maybe at the most uh, eight people that come to this, you know, it's once a month. And, and, and it's sad because I know there's a lot more people that can learn from this, but they I know a couple of them that don't go that I've tried to tell them to get to go. Um, they don't go because they're not ready for that, and they're still in that denial stage. And, That's right. You know, I, I, yeah. you know there's some key, there, there's some there's some key concepts that that you just wish everybody knew. You know, that, it's not that that you can give them the answers to how to deal with every day what's going to come up, but if you give them key concepts like you know uh, redirect, don't reorient, uh, laugh with them, do things that that will kind of give them key tools, you know, no matter what the situation is, to remember, oh, i got to remember, I've got to do this. Don't be confrontational. Don't be, you know, 
Um, but people don't even know that. So. Right. Very true. Very very true. Well, and you, you know, know it, it, well, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I was the perfect parent until I had children, and uh, you know, it, it's kind of like the same concept applies with caregiving. Um, you know, the the out of town family members that swoop in and and you know for. Uh, you know, a few days once or twice a year and, and know better how to care for your loved one than you do, uh, you know, dealing with it 24-7. Um, that's such a common concept. And, you know, it, it it's um, – I always tell people to um, take care, – caregivers should take that criticism uh, and, and twist it around to be an offer of help. So, for instance, you know, if your daughter comes to visit and she says, wow, Mom, you know, the house is really dirty. I, you know, you really need to do a better job with, you know, taking care taking care of the house or, or doing this with Dad or whatever. Just say, oh, wow, I thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Would you like to, to stay with your father while I clean or, or shall I clean and you can stay with your father? Which would be better for you, you know? Right. But, but turn it around as an offer for help. And, um, you know, experience really is the best teacher. And, and, you know, I mean, Danny knew all about the disease process in terms of the technicalities of what happened within the brain, you know, and could look at an MRI and tell you all kinds of things. But but it is different when you have a family member who has the disease um, and you're living with it every day and, um, and, and you know, you're, you're basically thrown into the deep end and told to swim. Um, and, and, you know, you 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 aren't prepared. There's no way to prepare a person to be a caregiver for um, someone with Alzheimer's disease. Uh, you know, there you just aren't prepared. Life does not prepare you for that, and and so you do the best you can with the tools you have, and um, you know, hopefully, uh, get more tools as as time goes on, and um, you know, critical family uh, members. Uh, it's just not helpful. No, yeah. well, no, and I, you know, I, I just feel terrible for you guys that you've been around this for forty years. But in, you know, in the meantime, it has made you such, you know, different people and knowledgeable people to be able to do what you do and teach other people. You know, uh, personally, I don't want to be around it that many years. You know, I and. <clears throat> You know, I don't have any parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, or anything that's living that, that you know, it possibly might affect me, you know. So, but, but you know, kind of in a way, you guys are fortunate be, because, like you said, when it does come to one of your own, you, you're, you're so knowledgeable on it, you know. Well, let me say something very important, and this is to your husband uh, and you and, and everybody else that has a disease, and that is, the inspiration for us to do what we've done, and this is an amazing statement, and I, I just I, I, I don't even understand the, the full magnitude of this. The inspiration for us to do what we've done came directly from the heart and mind of an Alzheimer's patient. That's where it came from. It came from it came from the heart and the mind of Lester Potts, the heart and the mind of Ellen's relatives that, that have had this disease. This is what inspired us to do it. That is very validating, or should be very validating, for all of you out there who are living with Alzheimer's disease. 
You're still you. You're still there. You still have creativity. You're still a human being. Alzheimer's disease doesn't touch the soul. And uh, so you go right back. I mean, the fertility for all of this, it, 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 it came from, from human life, someone living with this disease. So there you go. I love yeah, exactly. that statement, Alzheimer's doesn't yeah. touch the soul. I love that statement. I just got the chills when you said that because that's so true. Um, the core of the person is there. The other thing I wanted to comment on, and <clears throat> Ellen, when you said, you know, there's, we're really not trained to be caregivers, I, I look at that from a little different perspective. I think actually we are all trained from the moment we're conceived to be caregivers, but I think in this egotistical world that we live in, we forget about the basics of relationships and what's truly important. And so I think if we get back to the core of our compassion to get to know one another and to really do good and be good and connect, um, like we do with a small child, you know, to me, it's just back to the basics. We have to dumb it down and stop having all these layers of expectations projected out there of what life is supposed to look like or, you know, how something is supposed to flow. And, and let me tell you, from a control freak, man, that was not easy to let go of. Um, but once I got there, the burden that is lifted, you know, when you give up control and just say, you know what, there's more, more at work here than moi. And, you know, then it was really all about the person before me, and it wasn't about how the situation was making me feel. When I got to ask, you know, my when I used my little um, Your Membership tool, which is just asking three questions, are they safe, are they happy, are they pain-free, it gets down to the bare-bones basics of what's important. And, you know, like a parent, you pick your battles, you know, with fighting with your kids. <laughs> you know, or exactly. or your or, or your loved one. We have to do the same thing because is it in, is it important enough to put negative energy and time into something that you can't control, or do you just let it go, roll with the punches, um, find maybe something humorous about that that will be such a key story for you later on? That's what I found with um, all the stories that I've written. I'll never forget sitting with a. Um, a CEO of a, a large healthcare organization, and I was telling her various stories about my mom and I and our journey, and you know, many of them were very, very humorous. But each also had a teaching point. And she looked at me really sad, and she said, "I am so envious of your relationship with you and your mother." And I said, "Whatever do you mean?" And she's like, "I know she has Alzheimer's disease." She says. My mom is very healthy and lives in another state, but I don't have the stories. Wow. I don't oh, know. Wow. I don't know my mother like you know yours, and I am jealous. I want what you have, she said. And and that just, I mean, that just gave me chills when it, when she said at that time, and it did again now, because it's so powerful the connection. And again, it's just getting back to the allowing what is to be and getting back to the basic connections and getting rid of all the, the pompous crap um, and the keeping up with the Joneses and the images and, and just going with the flow and learning to 
you know, for me, my mom has also taught me how to play again, how to not take life so dang seriously. And, oh, my gosh, that's a gift. It's like I I'm, I'm, can be, fun, you know, spontaneous again. And I really lost that. I was driven by my schedule and my to-do list. And I was like, eh, my to-do list doesn't always get done. And, and no, my house isn't near as clean as it used to be. But you know what? Is it, is it life-threatening? No. Everybody's surviving just fine with a couple dust bunnies in my house, you know. <laughs> Lori, so, you you have just said perhaps one of the most things that's one of the most important things that's going to be said, I think, on the show today, and and this theme of this theme of relationships, this theme of relational identity. A very wise man uh, uh, I, I heard speak and have now become a friend of his uh, said, and let me let me tell you who he is. Uh, he is a a world famous theologian. Uh, from Scotland, who is now living as an Alzheimer's caregiver. Recently, his wife has has uh, been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. But but he but he he said, it's time for Western. He was talking about Western culture, for us in Western culture to focus on relational identity rather than occupational identity. And he went on to elaborate what he means by that is what you just said, Lori. We we are so concerned about how we're perceived, about what we, about our productivity, about how we're we're uh, viewed uh, in our society as being productive human beings, successful, keeping up with the Joneses, da da da. But what we really need to be focusing on is relational identity, who we are in relationship, who we are in relationship to uh, our family, our friends, our communities, those that need, uh, those that need us um, philanthropically, uh, et cetera, uh, and, 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 and spiritually, who we are in relationship. And uh, uh, I think there's a movement out there. I'm sensing it. Maybe that's just because I'm in the middle of it right now. But I think there's maybe a movement out there to to uh, drift in that direction, consciously drift in the direction of of of, of knowing ourselves in relationship. And uh, it, it, that's a mantra for caregiving. You know, if we can do that, we get back to the level. That's really important. We we throw away all the stuff, like you just said, and we latch on to what is really the root and the center and the core. And in doing so, guess what? We enrich not only the lives of the the person with Alzheimer's, but we enrich our own life. Oh, right? definitely, definitely. I have a thing called the hybrid caregiver, and caregiver I break down to car and e givers, and car stands mm-hmm. for conscious awakening of relationships. And e-givers is all about the emotional giving. Because somebody doesn't care if they get their pill at three or four, unless it's for pain. They care about how it's delivered, how you interact with them. And so I'm huge on the whole relationship thing. But I I don't think we can totally make that shift until we come together as a society and really break down how things are perceived um, and how they are received. And we need to do that on the patient's level, the family caregiver level, and the professional caregiver level, and then the medical resource people as a whole. And I couldn't agree to, more. And that's the only way more. we're going to be able to have effective change. We have to 
um, you know, one of the things I'm pushing for here, and it just came to me like two weeks ago, is, you know, we really need to get the medical professionals to be bilingual. And I don't mean speaking, you know, French or Spanish or German. I mean to speak the public's talk and, mm-hmm. and use their words and understand their phraseology and what that means to live with this disease. It's way more than a diagnosis. It's, it's, it's deeper than a tag, you know, and to be categorized and filed away. This is a life we're living. Um, and we also, I think, have to make the shift um, in terms of what caregiving is. Because caregiving, as much as, you know, that term says we're giving it away, we are receiving. So if you're a caregiver, you're also you're automatically a care receiver. But we don't talk about that. There's something we are getting back from this person that we're choosing to even give care to them in the first place. And for a professional caregiver, it might be money and benefits. You know, I'd like to think it's deeper than that. And that's one of my missions with my training is to get people to understand that you know, most of them aren't there for the money because it doesn't pay that great. <laughs> um, and so they have to get back to their, their heart and their sole purpose. And for us who have family members, again, we wouldn't be in that role if it wasn't for our relationship to begin with. And so it's so important not to lose that um, in the process. And I think, I think that that, you know, is one of the tragedies that is happening is people see caregiving as this crisis state and not that it doesn't, you know, rear its ugly head and you go through crisis, but caregiving is really a very natural state and one that we intrinsically cannot not do. And it it happens verbally and non-verbally all the time, every second of our life. So I'll get off my soapbox on that one. (laughs) I agree with I agree wholeheartedly with what you're saying the um the relational identity um that you and Danny were both talking about um has so much to do with who you are as a caregiver um you know i mean the reason the reason that we're doing what we're doing is because, you know, and I, I said earlier we weren't prepared to be caregivers, and, and in the nuts and bolts of the practicalities of dealing with a given situation that you have no clue what to do, we weren't. But in in the in a broader sense, in terms of uh, the compassion that we had for our loved ones and and the um, and the example that they set for us was the example of how you live your life. I mean, you know, my grandmother and my grandfather would be would be very proud of me for doing what I'm doing to um you know, to help other uh, to help caregivers. They um you know, whatever I can do, that's the way they lived their lives. They did things that were um good for their community, good for their family, um and you know, I mean, I, I think about my grandmother, who was um, school board chairman of, of her county, you know, in the 1940s, and that was unheard of in that time frame. Um, you know, she was the first uh, president of the Tennessee State Farm Bureau in the 1950s. That was unheard of for a woman to do those things. 
and and you know she was all about community service and all about doing what you could to help your family and to help your community and um and she set that example for me and and um and my grandfather did too but um you know we were we we are equipped for caregiving danny's dad was a city councilman you do what you can with whatever your your life experience is and whatever your gifts are to use that to help um help people in like circumstances and um you know i i feel like we've been put here for a reason and given these experiences for a reason and uh you know if we can if we can help people who are in the same boat as we have been then um you know that that's what we should be doing i i agree i like this I, you know I, I love your comments um of using our talents and i think that again is one of the mistakes we make is uh i know i did i tried to be everything to everybody instead of doing what i was good at and letting others pitch in and help because that took a little bit more work maybe to orchestrate or maybe it made me feel like i didn't have as much control or i wasn't fulfilling the good daughter role if i played it out like that um but again it comes in from all that judgment uh that we let drive us so much of the time well this is just a fun fun interesting conversation and i would love to get a hold of the the scotland theologist because he would be really fun to have on the show too so i'll have to oh he's 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 amazing jim houston is his name and he is at regent college in vancouver he's he's unbelievable he just is his intellect but his his insights and his heart are amazing. He was actually a friend of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien uh, oh, wow. at, at Oxford many, many years ago. Of course, he's in his 80s now, but um, just an amazing, amazing guy. Oh, wonderful. It looks like Rick's got a question here, so I'm going to pull Rick on. Rick, are you there? I- yeah, I wanted to pop in real quick before Phyllis June had to get off the phone. She said she listened at the beginning of the show. I just wanted to tell her that I've got all my things packed for Alabama, and we'll work on hers tonight. <laughs> and, and then, and then also, I want her to make sure she wrote down the part that uh, Danny said about the confrontation. Stay away <laughs> from confrontation. I try to as much as possible. <laughs> but Would I do you like have a prescri- to go, you- uh, Laurie, and I appreciate everything, your chance to talk. And um, I'm still going to listen on my computer, but I, I do need to get off the phone now. So thank okay. you very much. Well, thank you. Have a great day. It's great Bye-bye. meeting you, Phil. Okay, nice meeting you. Thank you. Yes. Well, well, I have to ask you a, a question, you know, for, for both of you two, um, and I think this is something that weighs on a lot of people's minds, and, and it has to. I can't imagine that it hasn't for the two of you, given the number of people in your family with the disease. But are you worried? Are either of you worried about getting um, Alzheimer's disease or having some form of dementia? Ellen, you want to start now? Um, you know, it's interesting. People ask me that a lot, and um, because really, from the from my earliest memories, that has been a part of our lives. I'm not frightened of that. Um, I know a lot of people have a different opinion, but 
in an odd way, it's been the norm in our family. And and you know, you, um, my my hope is that I can be like Danny's great aunt who had Alzheimer's disease, who um, just was the happiest person. I've ever known. She was just joyful and happy all the time and, and would say the most hysterically funny things. And, you know, I just hope that I can be like Aunt Lola, you know, who who would would say, honey, you know, you'd say, how do you feel, Aunt Lola? And she would say, honey, I, I feel wonderful. I've never had a headache, and that's because I don't take stimulants and I don't take anything from a cow. Baby, would you put some cream in that coffee for me, please? You know, she would just say the things that were just just bizarre and funny. And so, you know, if and when I get Alzheimer's disease, which, you know, given my family history, I may, um, <clears throat> you know, I, I just hope I can be like Aunt Lola and just be funny and happy and um you know i hope i hope the disease process affects me that way if if that is what happens to me okay and well, I, I would say doing? yeah i would say you know i think all of us probably you know have some level of concern about it but but i i really am not worried about it i don't think about it much uh if we look at it this way, you know, if uh, if the the average life expectancy in the United States is increasing, like like we think it will, uh, you know, and and if and if 47 percent of 85 year olds have Alzheimer's disease, and if you count the other forms of dementia, it's over 50 percent. Well, shoot, most of us are going to get it anyway. You know, I mean, I, I don't, I, I really, I really don't worry about it too much, to be honest with you. You know, so I guess you know, in my family, you know, everybody lives to be well into their 90s, and I just had a great aunt who, who passed away at 101. My grandmother's died at 96 and 97. Um, you know, it, it, I I figure that longevity is in my genes, and, and yeah, I probably, you know, odds are that I would get Alzheimer's disease. I'm not going to take a test to um, find out if that's in my future. You know, my my job is to live my life every day, you know, doing um you know living it the best i can and um and what comes comes and you know hopefully um by hopefully i'm setting the kind of example for our kids and danny's setting the kind of example for our kids that um you know they will they will be prepared to be caregivers if if that happens you know just like you said Lori, that we are prepared to be <clears throat> caregivers um you know just because we've been brought up to be compassionate loving people yeah, I I get asked that question all the time too, and you know I really I don't think about it much. Every now and then when I when something really laps my memory and I'm going wow, <laughs> you know, then I think wow, you know, could it be? Is this mm-hmm. what it's like? And it's more like I, my mind asks, is this what it's like? You know, on a, on right. a more frequent basis, and and I kind of go with that, but. But I, I, too, I just look at, you know, my mom, for the most part, is very happy. She went through, you know, the paranoia stage where that was horrible, where she thought people were stealing and talking behind her. And, and you know, and, and that was sad, and that was probably the most frustrating point. But for the most part, my mom is joyful. And, you know, I just find it, you know, my mission to try to educate people on securing the joy finding the joy, look for the joy, you know, stop focusing on the scary stuff, stop focusing on the sad stuff, because that's what you're going to find, if that's what you're looking right. for. So start 
start looking for the joy because it is there. And and I too, like you, Ellen, hope that that I can be a happy camper. And if I can be half as loved as my mom is in the nursing home, I will be thrilled to death. Because they <laughs> totally, I mean, they just love my mother. You know, over over Thanksgiving, she had a had some tremors, and we kind of thought it was going to be the beginning of the end. And we have a do not resuscitate for her. You know, she's been on this for 30 years, and we all know that Alzheimer's isn't typically going to be the thing that takes you out. It's going to be something else. And, you know, we had mm-hmm. big discussions with her early on, on, you know, how she wanted things. And the staff was actually having a more difficult time with that than not. And I said, really, it's okay. We we, we are okay. We love her to death. But you know what? If if it's time, it's time. You know, we're not right. we're not going to take these extra measures. And and to see the staff so worried about her and to think how difficult it's going to be when she does choose to leave was just I mean it just warmed my heart to think boy this you know they are her family they have become family yeah it's just it's wonderful and so you know my goal is to you know we can change all communities to be that way and and I don't mean just someone having to um, be placed. But our homes, our families, our neighborhoods need to be much more compassionate and open and accepting as well. Um, I, I have to get in here. I need to have. I need you guys to talk about your dad and his paintings, Danny, because yeah, that is just such a cool story, and people have got to see the videos on that. So, can you tell us a little bit about that? That piece. Of I can, and I'll. And I'll- I can, and I'll segue into it by, well, I actually, yeah, there was something I thought of, but I'm going to get to it in this story. So Dad, a rural Alabama sawmiller from Pine Grove, Alabama, grew up in the woods, grew up sawmilling on a farm, et cetera, uh, never would have painted a picture, never, you know, drew, was, was not very artsy. He appreciated the arts, but he just wasn't creative in that way. Uh, became an artist after the diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease. And for your viewers that missed the early part, Dad went to a dementia daycare center here in Tuscaloosa called Caring Days, a wonderful place. And they have art and music therapy. And Dad just blossomed down there. I mean, uh, uh, the, the, the art, the creativity just changed his life. He went down there a broken man, went down there depressed, losing his language function, lack of an, lack of ability to communicate. Very handy with his hands, but he he couldn't even put the lights on the Christmas tree. So he went down and uh, discovered his art. <clears throat> and for the next four or five years, he painted over a hundred original watercolors uh, that are amazing, amazing pieces of work. Um, they progressed in a way that is is kind of typical for Alzheimer's art. This phenomenon of Alzheimer's art, by the way, I wasn't aware of until my dad. Uh, uh, experienced this, but it's not unheard of, and with other types of dementia as well. So Dad's Dad's early early art was sort of simplistic, but very poignant. He got really good in the middle stage, and then toward the late stage, his art simplified and became less realistic, but much more powerful. And some of his last images, interestingly, are images from his early childhood. They came out when he couldn't tell you what they were. Images of a saw that his dad used to use, images of his dad's hat, high-top shoes that his dad wore, his home, etc. So these very powerful, poignant images we're left with. And the very last picture we're left with was that of a saw 
we believe to be one of Dad's earliest childhood memories, just a saw. And that has become a metaphor for, for Dad. So <clears throat> we were so amazed by this incredible creativity and productivity that uh, I, I looked at it and, it, and it so inspired me to try to create something also. My wife gave me, Helen gave me a wonderful book of poetry uh, one Christmas when we were going through the heart of Dad's rough time uh, uh, by Henry Van Dyke, collected works of Henry Van Dyke. And I read that and literally fell apart emotionally because it just did sort of unlock something in me. So through the words of that book and through looking at Dad's beautiful art, I started writing poetry itself. And I almost did it in a, in a, in a, in a way that would be scary because I, <laughs> I didn't sleep for about a month. I wrote about a poem a day for about 30 days and uh, spewed forth my heart uh, in gratitude for what I'd been given in life and gratitude for the hope that we have and uh, for the story of this man, Lester Potts. And uh, so we put the art, about a third of it, <clears throat> together with the poetry, about 30 pieces of poetry, into a book called The Broken Jar. And The Broken Jar we gave two caring days to raise money for their facility and for their programs, and they still have that. It's in its third printing now. And that book really is the, is, is the thing that, that changed our lives and got us set on this direction because it got noticed and it got found out and it touched people and it was the it was the art that touched them and so the broken jar is still available uh, on several websites one of them is the caring days website www.caringdays.org in addition to our foundation website which i'll get to in a second but that is www.cognitivedynamics.org and also our caregiver website for our caregiver training company, www.dementiadynamics.com. The book is available at all those, those places. All of the money goes to Caring Days for that, for that book. So Dad's art has taken off. This, this art has been shown now in Paris. This art has been shown in Beverly Hills at the David Streets Galleries, one of the finest art galleries there. Uh, it's, it's been shown all over the country. Plans are made to show it in Boston and several museums. And I've done lectures all across the country on this phenomenon of Lester's art, creativity. And one of the things that it says to us is, and we need to explore this with research and other things, is that even in end-stage Alzheimer's disease, the ability to create still remains. The ability to, the, the ability to express personhood still remains. Dad created an abstract image of his father when, at a time when he couldn't talk. And uh, uh, he was trying to express something through these arts. We know that the, the arts, the expressive arts therapies, benefit people like this. We've got to get research behind it, and we've got to make them more widespread. <clears throat> so Dad's art story really has painted the world a different color for, for us. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. Because of his art, Lori, we created a foundation called Cognitive Dynamics. The mission of this foundation is to bring these therapies to those that don't have access to them now. One of our initiatives is called Cognitive Connections. Cognitive Connections is a training program run by our foundation and directed by Angel Duncan, who is an art therapist in New York City. Angel is very, very well known in this area and has, has uh, been a trainer for the Alzheimer's Association and other entities in bringing these expressive therapies to caregivers. 
So our Cognitive Connections program will go out and train uh, professional caregivers in assisted living facilities and nursing homes and other entities about how to bring this therapy to their clients. They're, they won't become art therapists in the process, we understand that, but it will give them the tools to carry out these art activities that will enrich life. Another program I will tell you about from our foundation is called <clears throat> Bringing Art to Life. and This is a program that we've developed in association with the University of Alabama and with VSA Arts. VSA Arts was established by the Kennedy administration as a part of the Kennedy Center for Bringing Arts to the Disabled. And this program goes to, it takes art therapy to homes, dementia patients that still are living with Alzheimer's disease in the home and their caregivers. And we have six to eight weeks of art therapy, and during this art therapy, we try to tease out the life story of this person who's living with Alzheimer's disease and preserve it digitally on a DVD or in a story a storybook, basically. At the end of the course, which is done in collaboration with the University of Alabama Honors Students, they're the ones that are eliciting the life, life story, we give the family this DVD of the life, and uh, we have a reception that honors the, the, the patient, this life story, and the art. It goes on display. And we had our first one in underprivileged rural Alabama this past semester. And to see the way these folks uh, were so uh, happy and touched and proud of themselves and their creativity and the fact that their life stories were honored was very, very touching. And so we plan to take this uh, not only uh, all over Alabama at some point, but we're talking to folks across the country do, doing something similar to this because it's about valuing the human life. And, again, it doesn't focus on the disease. It doesn't focus on the disease. It focuses past the disease to this individual who is still there. I love So that's the story of Lester and his art. Wow. Wow, you guys are just powerhouses. You're doing such incredible work. I, I just, I can't thank you enough. And I'm going to have to have you send me all these various links so I can push them out on the blog because I don't think I have all of the projects that uh, that you're involved in. I would love to help promote those. So wonderful. Um, I've got a couple more questions here. If you guys still have some time, you still doing okay? Sure. sure. Absolutely. Okay, wonderful. What advice would you give um, to someone who's worried about their own memory? And, Dan, I'll let you take that since you're a neurologist. Okay. Well, first of all, um, no memory loss complaint should be taken lightly. Uh, however, uh, if, if someone is concerned about his or her own memory, that tends to be a good sign, you know, uh, if, if, the, if the person with the problem brings it to attention of someone, that's a little bit better situation than if those that love or know that person bring it to the attention of someone. Uh, however, if, you are, if you're having memory problems and you're over the age of 65 or 70 uh, that you've noticed or that someone else has noticed, it should be taken very seriously and you should go in for uh, an evaluation, first of all, by your primary care provider. Because uh, because this, of course, is, is uh, when when uh, the incidence of Alzheimer's disease and most other dementias takes off is about that age. So uh, you should and, and what you should do is probably be fairly forceful. And I'm speaking you if you're the patient or you if you're a, a loved one. You should be fairly forceful with the primary care provider and say, look, we really want this investigated because 
and I'm not knocking anybody, but unfortunately what happens is many of them are so busy and they're there to take care of their diabetes or they're there to take care of their heart problem, and they're going to minimize those complaints. Don't let them do it. Be evaluated. Now, if you're a younger person and you're experiencing memory loss, then it's less likely to be something like Alzheimer's disease, and it's more likely to be something else. Could it be depression? Could it be medications that you're taking? Could it be lack of sleep? Could it be a medical issue like diabetes that you have? Could it be behavioral, lifestyle-related? Something like that. Don't take it minimally either, but it's less likely to be to be one of these uh, one of these illnesses. But get it seen about. That's the bottom line. And you've got to take hold of the situation yourself and get it seen about because otherwise, if you don't push it, it's going to be too, it's going to be it's going to be too advanced. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. Ellen, anything you'd like to add? Uh, I I agree with what Danny says, and um, you know that there are drugs that in in many cases can help people with all you know who are living with Alzheimer's disease, and um, you know the the thing about it, so many people just do want to stick their heads in the sand; they don't want to know, and you know they they are are in denial until. You know, the the person with Alzheimer's disease is really well into the middle stages, and um, you know their their loved one could have been living a much better life um, up to that point if they had been diagnosed early in many many cases, and so you know early diagnosis um, really is important, and uh, you know to to get to a physician who who understands the disease process it, you know you don't get that training in medical school uh you know you're you're taught to um diagnose the loss uh, you know what what has been lost and diagnose based on that um you need to talk to a person who um a physician who really understands the process or at least has has a heart for um for people <coughs> with the disease process um and and you know early diagnosis is huge and and if nothing else you know to make plans and to be able to um plan for for what's coming and you know even though you don't know exactly you know in general um and and you know in Danny's dad's case especially his course of illness uh, was, at least it seemed very rapid. It was pretty rapid. It, it, you know, there was one year where he had his occupational therapy exam where he recognized 17 of 18 road signs, and then one year later he recognized one of one of 18. And so, um, you know, just just to to know earlier to be able to prepare. Um, it is helpful i think for for people living with the disease and for their their family wonderful wonderful um do you have do each of you have a personal philosophy that has helped you um as you know during your role as a caregiver something that's just kind of raised you up and allowed you to kind of maneuver this path that's really quite bizarre you know, when you think about it. Um, and so do you have a philosophy, you know, or some belief that's just really raised you up to, to carry on with this journey? And, Danny, I'll let you go first. 
Uh, wow, I have, have so many, but you know they've been under development and and not and, and and they weren't necessarily present when we were going through it. You know, uh, Lauren. Mm-hmm. But um, but looking back on it, I would again, I would again look to the very center of the person, that actual one that is suffering with Alzheimer's disease, and to draw energy somehow and inspiration somehow out of the core of that person. And I think a mantra for caregiving would be to find a way as a caregiver and the way you interact with this person on a daily basis to pull out the very, very best in that individual or to at least find a way for the best in that individual to get out. One of the metaphors that I love uh, involves a broken jar, and that's, that's the reason... And actually, Ellen came up with the name for that book, but it's 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 it has to do with the metaphor of the of the clay jar that is full of the essence of life, um, and uh, life life batters and tosses us around, and we start out maybe with a lovely, beautiful, intact clay jar, but as the storms of life hit, the, the jar cracks. But but those cracks enable the essence of that love, that humanity, to get out and to touch the, to touch others to touch the world. So Alzheimer's has rendered some cracks to the jar. But let's form a a pathway for this essence of the human self to get out. And uh in doing so, we're going to improve quality of life for that person and we're going to improve our own quality of life by drawing from the very one who is suffering. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. I think that's great, great advice. How about you, Ellen? Do you have any particular philosophies? Um, I would say that, uh, you know, my faith has been a tremendous asset in um, in just getting through this and um, and feeling like that there was a greater plan somehow. I don't believe that God sends Alzheimer's to anyone but you know that that God gives us the grace to deal with uh whatever whatever comes and um you know that has that has been true throughout my 40 some odd you know 40 year journey with Alzheimer's disease with various family members that that you know we've all been given the grace to to deal with the situations um that confronted us um, you know, and, and we are supposed to treat people the way we would like to be treated. And uh if you know, if you can if you can keep that in mind, um it helps as a caregiver. Uh you know, I think about my grandmother, um, who cared for my grandfather at home for thirteen or fourteen years. You know, I, I wonder how on earth she survived um that journey she you know my grandfather was a wanderer she would sleep uh holding on to his pajama bottoms at night so she would know when he would get up to wander away um you know because sometimes he would get out in the night if she if she didn't know and um you know how on earth did she survive that well you know she would she would tell us if she were still here that her faith sustained her and that you know that was that was the situation uh you know he he was a wonderful husband and father and uh you know it was her turn to take care of him so um i, I would just say that that you know I, that 
just the knowledge that that there's a, a broader plan in this, and 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 seeing you know that uh, we we have been placed in these situations and been given this gift of being able to help others, you know, who are going through the same thing. Uh, that has been that has truly been a joy and although I, I would not wish Alzheimer's disease on my family members or anyone, God forbid, but uh the ways in which this these experiences have been used for good uh has been breathtaking, to be quite frank. The doors that have been opened for us, the um the fact that we're talking to you right now, uh it, it just indicates that there's a broader plan to me and and that has been um made the whole journey uh just transformed. Yeah, I know for for me, you know, the life philosophies that I that this process has taught me is um one to always ask the question what is the lesson and what's before me instead of getting angry or frustrated to dig deeper to find out what the triggers are um and what is the lesson and one of the things that has just slapped me in the face was that a person with Alzheimer's uses the same equation the rest of us does for any reaction. And we all think that they do things different because, you know, the wires don't always connect the way they used to. But they still use the same equation, which is their attitude plus past experiences equal their perception. And their perception causes their reaction. And so if we can figure out, you know, what is their perception and why are they scared or nervous or sad or mad, then we can get on to, you know, my second kind of life philosophy with this journey, and that is to create joy. Um, And then the, the third one for me is to, you know, let go of my control and let God in the universe, you know, or whoever you believe in, um, take over and know that you're not alone. Um, spiritually right. and and physically, there are so many others out here. And like with Rick's group, memory people, is just a perfect example of how not alone we are and how much we can do individually if we just step out of our box and believe we have the power to create a better world. And that's why I love doing this show, because it it gives me the opportunity to share all the amazing people doing incredible work to make the world better for people dealing with this disease. So, Lori, one of the things you said to us when you first started communicating with us, talking to us, is you're you're not you know you're not about a name for yourself you're not about any particular you know uh, organization or anything like this what we're what you're about is all of us working together and providing a medium for us to do that to make the world a better place for these folks and that's what we love so much uh we we're right on the same page with what you said today but i love your 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 attitude of 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 collaboration and because uh, otherwise we're not going to from a grassroots level we're not going to we're not going to change the culture unless we hold hands and change culture right correct correct and it is we we can do much more together than you know trying to be proprietary thinking that we have the answers and especially with this disease, I mean, it teaches you there are no black and white answers to any of the right. questions above, you know, because it changes 
from person to person and moment to moment. And so when we can learn to embrace that and not have to be perfect, I mean, that's one of the gifts of, you know, being with my mom now in her end stages is she has no ego and she accepts me no matter how I walk in the door. And, and to feel that comfortable and that loved and that connected, um, that's just so rare. I mean, to really be loved unconditionally, um, she knows how to do that, and I think she's taught me to get better at that. You may know the author Kathy Borey, B-O-R-R-I-E, but we have mm-hmm. to bring up Kathy's name because Kathy from Canada has celebrated her mother's life who had dementia through uh, uh, writings uh, that, that basically she has made poetry out of. Her mother would, they would be having these conversations, and her mother would say this very, very poetic phrase that just has just the words of life in it, you know. And, and Kathy would, would, would write around that. And, and her writings are absolutely gorgeous. I, I would recommend that you, uh, and we'll put you in touch with Kathy, because... Uh, um, it, it's uh, the long hello is one of her books, but it's you know they're wonderful. But she's doing what you're talking about. She's celebrating mm-hmm. that human being's life. Yeah, and that's that's what we have to do. Um, well, we need to wrap up here. I can't believe we've been on the air almost two hours, and it's just been a wonderful conversation. So, you know, um, Danny and Ellen, thank you both so much for being with us today. And listeners, I really encourage you to you know. Take a peek at a pocket guide for Alzheimer's caregiving or caregiver um, because it is an absolutely fantastic um, book. I know that you will not be disappointed. And Rick Phelps, thank you so much for joining us as well. Again, if you're not part of Memory People on Facebook, uh, just put it in the search tag and um, ask to be part of the group because, again, it's just another wonderful place for support. And for our listeners, I I can't thank you enough for being part of our show today and participating. And if you wouldn't mind, if you did enjoy the show, um, please help us spread the word. You know, if you can tweet us or like us or um, take it and put it on your Facebook page or whatever, it's all about working together and spreading the word because there's so much knowledge out there and so much information um, I can't do it by myself, so I, I need your help. Um, so I would really appreciate you joining me um, in spreading the word that we are here. And our next show coming up is on the 25th, and that's going to be a really interesting show as well. That is with Dr. Doug Warnell, who is a geriatric psychologist. He, too, has written a book, and then on September 7th, Um, I'm going to have Eileen Smith from New Zealand and Mary Beth Watson from Texas, who are both caregivers for their husbands with Alzheimer's disease. And then September 12th, we are going to have a couple of amazing people on. Mike um, Schmerling, who is the chairman of the board for Abe's Garden and the executive director Um, Andrew Sandler, and Abe's Garden is going to be a new community like nothing we have ever seen in the U.S. before. It is going to be a um, community for housing, and it is going to be a 24-7 adult daycare combined with a research center. And so their goal is 
you know, to be the first of its kind in the nation, um, and they're going to talk about that and share that with us. We also have, um, I'm working on having uh, Laura Beck from the Eden Alternative and uh, Gary Joseph LeBlanc, the author of <coughs> Staying Afloat in a Sea of Forgetfulness, um, will be on too. So we've got some some fun, fun, I think very informative shows coming, so I hope you'll be able to to join us. And if you're memory impaired and interested in sharing your story, I would love to hear from you. Or if you're a, a caregiver um, or if you feel you have a unique perspective from a business um, side, you know, please get a hold of me. And thank you again so much for joining us here at Alzheimer's Speaks. Together, we can make a difference. Have a blessed day. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families, too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.